In today's episode of 750 Mills, what exactly do you need to know if you want to stay healthy and if there's a pandemic going on around you? We'll talk about the nutritional science behind surviving viral infections and what doctors and researchers are saying you need to pay attention to right now. And of course, we've got the usual suspects in today's episode. A secret link you'll want to check out in the Feel Good Featured track plus some ancient Greek wisdom on what it takes to stay healthy is all coming at you right now. Hey everyone, welcome to 7 to Females, the show that's all about bringing you good news, interesting stories, and all manner of genuinely useful things to know. I'm your host Andre, and in this episode, we're going to talk about the one thing that's been on everyone's mind pretty much the whole year, the coronavirus. We know it's a problem and that it causes a cascade of other problems right after it, but what I've got to tell you today is something I think you'll be happy to hear. Especially if you just want a bit of clarity and some straight talk when it comes to what the best way to deal with this whole situation is based on science and real-world solutions. This episode is for you. Also, if you have any family or friends who might be really worried about COVID-19 and you think they could use some information that's actually useful when it comes to staying healthy and minimizing the risk of having severe symptoms or worse, please consider sharing this episode with them. Send them a link and let them know about this episode of the 750 Mills Podcast. What's the best way to keep yourself healthy during a pandemic? Here's the thing about this, and this can be a bit tricky because over the past few months, boy have things gotten testy over even just talking about this. You've got government guidelines and then you have people either strongly agreeing with these or people strongly against these for their own reasons. Some give compelling arguments, others maybe not so much. I won't be talking to you about whether or not you should follow government guidelines like wearing masks or not wearing masks. We'll take a different approach to this conversation. What I will be talking to you about are the things that you can do, based on the science, based on the best available information that we have, to keep yourself healthy and far more likely to survive the coronavirus or any other virus like a really bad case of the flu or some other variant of it. So many people are focused on arguing about the different types of masks and how effective or ineffective they might be or some other measure instituted by our respective governments, but hardly anyone is talking at large about the effect your level of health and fitness can directly have on your ability to survive any serious sickness. Think about it. If you want shelter from a rainstorm, you want to be in a house with its roof and walls intact. You don't sit inside a house with holes in the roof and the walls falling apart, arguing with the people around you which type of umbrella is the best at keeping you dry from the rain. What's the point? It's not that umbrellas, or masks and PPE, just to be clear, aren't useful for what they're designed for. But it's better if you've done everything you can to shore up your body's natural defenses to properly weather just about most of the health issues that can come your way, including and especially viruses. By all means, follow the guidelines to reduce potential risks and hedge all your bets on that side of the argument, but don't forget that you can also do so much more to protect yourself and the people around you. And it starts, well, with you. Or rather, within you. When you take proper care of your immune system and give it the right tools to support itself, it is such a powerful thing that can help you deal with and survive just about anything, and that includes the coronavirus. The question is, 
Have you done that? If you're not sure, you probably haven't. So your next question might be, where or how can I start making sure my immune system is in the best possible shape to help me fend off being sick as well as I can? A good place to start is to figure out how much of a risk the coronavirus is to you personally. Here's what to look out for, according to the experts. You're at higher risk for more severe symptoms and worse outcomes if you have a pre-existing condition like being overweight or obese, if you have diabetes, heart issues, hypertension or high blood pressure, cancer, low oxygen saturation capacity, basically some very common but rather serious concerns even before the whole pandemic itself started. Also, if you've previously gotten some medical tests and they say you have higher levels of ferritin, C-reactive protein, or D-dimer, you're also at higher risk. These three things are small proteins found in your bloodstream that tell you that something is inflamed and your body is trying its best to fight it, but you might not be in the best condition either. Many experts right now believe that hyperinflammation plays a crucial role in the severity of patient outcomes. What this means is that it's not the virus itself that you should worry about the most. Direct viral injury, which is their term, isn't quite the main thing that makes things go horribly wrong in the body, but other conditions that may be present alongside the coronavirus infection, particularly things that promote severe inflammation. Long story short, if you or someone you know already has a long-standing health condition prior to contracting the coronavirus, or if you or they are overweight, the risk involved is absolutely higher, and you need to be proactive in fixing that if you really want to minimize inflammation and improve your body's ability to defend itself and survive viral infections. There are some very specific things you can look at and do to shore up and support your immune system to help it fight off the coronavirus specifically, and we will talk about that in just a minute. But we need to get something out of the way first. It will be tremendously helpful to you and the people you're caring for to make sure you eat healthfully and get regular exercise, even if this means, to begin with, simply going out for regular walks for as long as you can, cutting out junk food, and sticking to homemade meals made from real, whole food ingredients like green leafy vegetables and high-quality animal proteins and healthful fats. Just doing these two things can go a long way in helping you deal with the list of things we talked about just a few minutes ago that puts you at higher risk, but you've got to do it consistently. I know that this can sometimes be easier said than done because habits are hard to change, especially when it comes to the foods we love to eat, but think about what you're getting in exchange for your time, effort, and patience. You'll be stronger, you'll feel better, you'll accomplish something genuinely worthwhile, and if you get any serious infection of any sort, you'll be less likely to die because of it. I'm not saying you should go 100% super clean food all the time because even if some people can do that, it's a pretty steep hill to climb for most of us. But even if you just do these things for like 5 or 6 days out of the week with 1 or 2 cheat days where you reward yourself for sticking to it every other day, that'd be a good place to start. If you want to go beyond the general advice of taking good long walks and eating healthful homemade meals using whole food ingredients, I'll put a link in this episode's show notes to an article I wrote on the basics or the fundamentals of staying fit and healthy. So it's a detailed guide that will tell you mostly everything you need to know all in one place. Anyway, 
Can you just take a pill and hope that the coronavirus magically goes away? Just like that? Well, no. But there are some pills, or specifically, micronutrients that are also available in supplement form that can mean the difference between a quicker recovery or a longer stay in the intensive care unit. A couple of studies have recently come out that show the importance of several specific micronutrients that can help you fend off the coronavirus and improve patient outcomes, which is fancy talk for you'll be less dead, probably. One study published in the journal called Nutrition examined what effect treating COVID-19 patients with a combination of vitamin D, magnesium, and vitamin B12 would have. They gave the patients a daily dose of 1,000 international units of vitamin D3, 150 milligrams of magnesium, and 500 micrograms of vitamin B12. The results? Of the patients given vitamin D, magnesium, and vitamin B12, or DMB for short, only 17% required oxygen therapy, intensive care support, or both, compared to 61% of the patients who did not get DMB. Now that's, that's pretty significant. Another study published in the BMJ's Open Heart Journal, which is the official journal of the British Cardiovascular Society, looked at the relationships between hyperinsulinemia, magnesium, vitamin D, thrombosis, and provided some suggestions for clinical management of patients with COVID-19 based on their findings. And just a quick side note, hyperinsulinemia is the unusually high presence of the hormone insulin in your bloodstream which is usually due to consuming a high amount of carbohydrate and sugar-filled food and drinks on a regular basis. In other words, high blood sugar levels. The study notes that when your blood sugar is consistently high, it lowers the levels of both vitamin D and magnesium in your body. Why are these two things important? Vitamin D is important for making your immune system work properly. It's anti-inflammatory and helps regulate your immune system enhancing the function of immune cells, including T-cells and macrophages, which protect your body against pathogens, or disease-causing stuff that shouldn't be in your body and should be thrown out as quickly as possible. And this will happen if your immune system is working as it should be. Other studies have shown that low vitamin D levels have been linked to you being at higher risk for all manner of illnesses, particularly respiratory diseases plus both viral and bacterial infections, and puts you at higher risk of decreased lung function. Basically, it'll be easier for you to get sick and harder for you to recover if you have low vitamin D. What about magnesium? First and foremost, vitamin D activation requires magnesium if you want your body to be able to make proper use of it. By itself, magnesium is also extremely important for good health. It's involved in more than hundreds of processes and chemical reactions that happen in your body, which includes things like converting food into energy, helping repair and create DNA and RNA, helping keep your nervous system healthy. Other studies have also shown that magnesium is beneficial for boosting exercise performance, reducing stress, fighting depression, managing migraines, and in some cases, it can even improve PMS symptoms. But most relevant to what we're talking about right now, magnesium is beneficial for the purposes of managing blood pressure and minimizing inflammation. The study in the BMJ Open Heart Journal also recommends zinc, a micronutrient that, like magnesium, plays many vital roles in your body, including growth and development, helping your wounds heal properly and more quickly, and, quite importantly, helping your immune system to function properly.
Zinc helps keep your immune system strong, boosting the activity of infection-fighting T-cells and natural killer cells, reducing oxidative stress, as well as reducing the risk of infections. And in one study, it's even been shown to reduce the length of the common cold by up to 33%. Some additional benefits, especially in older adults, include reduced risk of pneumonia, improved mental performance, and in one study, it showed a 66% decrease in infection rates. Here's one interesting thing that happens when you're low on zinc. There's an enzyme that's crucial for proper taste and smell that is dependent on this nutrient. Basically, a zinc deficiency can reduce your ability to taste or smell. Now this stood out to me because over the past few months I've been reading a few news reports that have suggested that a change in or loss in your senses of smell and taste seem to also be one of the indicators that you might have the coronavirus. Now I don't know of anyone yet who's published or made a direct connection between zinc deficiency and the change in your sense of taste or smell being related to the coronavirus, but it kind of made me think. Also, in the first study that we talked about that used DMB protocol for treating patients with COVID-19, they included the vitamin B12. The reason for that is that vitamin B12 is essential in supporting a healthy gut microbiome, which has an important role in the development and function of the immune system. They continue saying that this could be pivotal in preventing excessive immune reaction, especially in COVID-19 patients with microbiota dysbiosis, which has been associated with severe disease. When they say microbiota dysbiosis, by the way, in simple terms, that means that the balance of good bacteria to bad bacteria in your gut is out of whack, and this has been shown to contribute to some pretty bad things health-wise. This tends to happen when you eat a lot of junky, processed food. So B12 helps fix that to some degree, along with helping your immune system work better and hopefully not overreact, which can cause excessive inflammation, which can do more harm than good for you. So we've established that vitamin D, vitamin B12, magnesium, and zinc are useful tools in helping your immune system stay strong against COVID-19, and really just your overall health, according to the evidence put forth by these medical researchers. So how much do we really need of each micronutrient, and where can we get them? What are the best sources? If you're thinking of just straight up following the DMB protocol, here's a cheat sheet for it. It's supplemental vitamin D at 1,000 international units, magnesium at 150 milligrams, and vitamin B12 at 500 micrograms. Now, let's start with vitamin D. There are two types of vitamin D. You got D2 and there's D3. What's the difference? You get D2 primarily from plants, mushrooms, and some yeasts. D3 is primarily from animal food sources like fatty fish and egg yolks. Here's the rub. Studies have shown that D3, found in meat and eggs, is almost twice as effective at raising the levels of vitamin D in your blood compared to D2 from plant food sources. Just bear that in mind if you're looking to get additional vitamin D from food. You can also get vitamin D from proper sun exposure, since this triggers your skin to manufacture D3, but you need to do this in a very specific way. First, you need to be dressed down allowing a generous amount of skin to be directly exposed to sunlight. So, think more on the side of dressed like a beach bum and less on the side of wrapped up like an Eskimo. Second, 
The best time of day to get sun exposure is noon, 12 o'clock or thereabouts. The reason for this is that the time of day when the type of ultraviolet rays that stimulate vitamin D3 production, UVB, are highest, and the type of UV rays that are harmful to you, UVA, are lowest. So no, not early morning or late afternoon if you've heard people tell you that before. Third, do not wear sunscreen. These will block the very rays that you want to expose yourself to and defeat the purpose of what you're trying to do to begin with. Fourth, how long should you spend out in the sun? Now that's the tricky part. As a general rule of thumb, you don't want to expose yourself to the sun to the point where you get sunburned. Basically, you want to make an educated guess as to what point your skin feels like it's about to get sunburned and then step away from direct sun exposure just before that point in time. Things to consider include your skin tone, as that can determine how long you can stay out and how effectively your skin can absorb the UVB rays. Another thing that appears to be gaining traction is the theory that if your level of omega-6 fatty acids is quite high compared to your level of omega-3 fatty acids, it's easier for you to get sunburned. This usually happens when you consume a lot of processed foods and use seed oils and vegetable oils in your diet. If you lower your levels of omega-6 relative to omega-3, it appears to have a bit of a protective effect and helps you reduce your skin's propensity to get sunburned too quickly. It's tricky, ain't it? I'd say try to see if you can get 5 minutes of direct sun exposure at noon every day, see if you can tolerate that, then once you've adapted to it, try increasing it to maybe 10 minutes per day and so on. Your mileage may vary, so you'll have to test things out and see what works for you. One thing to keep in mind is that you cannot overdose on vitamin D3 that's produced in your skin. If your body thinks it's already got enough or getting near it, it'll just produce less of it. All of this, of course, uh, this gets a lot tougher if you live in a country where winter is a thing. Which brings us to the easiest or at least the most convenient way of getting vitamin D3, supplementation. So how much is enough? It depends. But here are some recommendations. The U.S. Institute of Medicine suggests that an average daily intake of 400 up to 800 international units, or 10 to 20 micrograms, is good enough for 97% of individuals. The authors of the DMB protocol, as we mentioned, uses uh, use 1,000 international units. And then the authors of the study in the BMJ Open Heart Journal cited a paper that for groups low in vitamin D levels, including those who are obese, those who are elderly, those with high blood sugar and insulin levels, those with dark skin, those with chronic health conditions, 5,000 international units of vitamin D each day appears to be protective against viral respiratory infections. Another paper published in the Nutrients Journal this year recommended a dosage of 10,000 international units for a few weeks if you want to quickly raise your body's levels of vitamin D then dropping it down to 5,000 after that, even noting that people who become infected with COVID-19 should consider taking even higher doses than what they've recommended. Well, there you go. Brand-wise, I'm not sure if it really matters as long as you can find a reputable manufacturer that's known for producing quality supplements. I'll put a link to the brand of vitamin D3 I personally use in the show notes for this episode, and I'll do the same for the rest of the stuff we've talked about here. So be sure to check that out after listening to this one if you'd rather not go brand hunting. 
I'll also try to put a list of food sources of vitamin D with their respective amounts available per serving if you want to try and get a good chunk of it from food. Moving on, let's talk about magnesium. Well, there are a lot of different types of magnesium, but the type I like is magnesium threonate. The reason being that it's easily absorbed, it easily crosses the blood-brain barrier, and provides a bit of a lift in terms of brain fog inclined people like me. If you want a good rundown of the different types of magnesium and pick one that you think will be best for yourself and for your purposes, I'll let Thomas Delar do the explaining for us in his video, which I'll embed in the show notes. He also links to a bunch of papers on the importance of magnesium for your health in his video's description box, so you can check that out as well if you want. In terms of dosage, here's what the two studies used. In the DMB protocol, they used 150 milligrams of magnesium. In the BMJ Open Heart Journal study, it was 200 milligrams. If you're deficient in magnesium, you may need to adjust your dose accordingly. I'll put a link to an article that talks about what to look for in terms of potential magnesium deficiency, as well as the daily recommended doses that factor in age, gender, lifestyle, and if you're pregnant or not. Personally, I just follow the recommended dose on the back of the bottle. What about zinc? Well, one thing to know about zinc is that your body can't naturally produce it, so it's necessary for you to obtain it from food sources or from supplements. If you do supplement, you'll need to choose absorbable forms of zinc like zinc citrate or zinc leuconate, but avoid zinc oxide, which is poorly absorbed by the body. Dosage-wise, the recommended daily intake for men is 11 milligrams and for women is 8 milligrams, but that'll go up to 11 to 12 milligrams for pregnant and breastfeeding women. You'll want to avoid going higher than 40 milligrams, which is a tolerable upper level for supplementation, but bear in mind this doesn't apply to those who have zinc deficiencies. And finally, vitamin B12. The recommended daily intake for vitamin B12 is 2.4 micrograms for most people over 14 years of age. And the good news is, most of us can easily get this through food sources. For example, 2 eggs gives you 1.2 micrograms of B12. So if you double up to 4 eggs every day, you've met the minimum RDI. 3 ounces or 85 grams of tuna gives you 2.5, so more than enough. And a similar amount of beef gives you 1.4 micrograms, but who are we kidding? No one eats just a tiny 85 grams of beef. You have a steak for dinner, you're gonna get your minimum RDI of B12 and then some. Like we've said about the other micronutrients though, um, dosage will depend on what your current health condition is. If you have deficiencies or if you've got a health condition that affects how your body absorbs and utilizes B12, you may need a different dose. Again, for what's worth, the DMB protocol used for COVID-19 patients used a B12 dose of 500 micrograms, so just keep that in mind. Hey folks, just taking a quick break to let you know about a few updates and things going on with the podcast. The show will now come out twice a month, that's two episodes each month with maybe an occasional third one, depending on how much material gets developed and how much news there is to cover. The reason for this is that I want to take more time to really flesh out each episode as well as I possibly can. This involves doing the proper research and making sure things are as on the level as they possibly can be, and this is really important to me when we're dealing with topics that involve a lot of science, like this episode. I want to make sure that each episode maintains a certain standard of quality, and quality takes time. 
Plus, I've also been working on a few ideas and a few things for the podcast that are going on in the background, and I'll be announcing them when they're good and ready. The mission stays the same, though. I want to make sure that whenever you tune in to 750 Mills, you get good news, you get interesting stories, and you get genuinely useful things to know. And while these things never go out of style, it's also easy enough for these to get drowned out by most news outlets that focus on giving everyone a constant diet of, oh, the whole world is on fire, and here's today's reasons why you should be scared slash angry. It's true, though. The whole world kind of is maybe on fire. But there's still genuinely good things happening out there. Good people doing good things that you deserve to know about. And that's not nothing. And if you think that's worthwhile, maybe you can help me out. Something as simple as telling people about the podcast and maybe sharing this episode with them goes a long way. Subscribe to 750 Mills on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Like the Facebook page to get bite-sized audiograms with useful and interesting information that you can share with your friends. And if you got 5 minutes, leave a star rating and a quick review. This helps me know what you think, what things could be improved here on the podcast. It also helps more people find the podcast. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. I'm always looking for good stuff for you guys. Now, back to the episode. So far, what we've talked about are the specific things you can do and what specific things you can take for the near term in the context of the pandemic. Is there anything else you can do that's based on sound science that's recommended by both doctors and medical researchers to make yourself healthier and to support your immune system, not just in the near term, but looking further out if you want sustainable health benefits? We've talked about it a little bit at the start of this episode. But here's the oversimplified version. Eat healthfully and exercise regularly. One of the more outspoken voices in terms of promoting healthful eating and exercising as a way to directly improve your body's ability to fight off the coronavirus is Dr. Raseem Malotra, a London-based cardiologist. Here's what he said in an interview with Sky News. The likelihood is that we are probably all, at some point, going to get this virus. The question is, are we going to have mild symptoms or more severe symptoms? If we look after our health properly now, we can protect ourselves from severe illness. So, eating nutritious whole foods, cutting the ultra-processed foods, or snacks, or crisps, the chocolates, all that to a bare minimum, if we can do that, we're already on a good way to better health. And he goes on to talk about the importance of exercise and the dangers of physical inactivity, what types of activities to avoid, as well as providing both simple suggestions for where to start and what's at stake for us. So, having talked about what we talked about in terms of food and diet in this episode, what's a simple, straightforward principle that you can follow in terms of picking foods to eat and what foods to avoid? The short version is this. Put yourself on a restricted or low-carbohydrate diet. This is a direct recommendation you can find in the exact same study we've been talking about from the BMJ Open Heart Journal. And here's an interesting fact. One of that paper's authors is none other than Dr. Asim Malotra himself. Why should you restrict the amount of carbohydrates you consume? Because when you seriously lower your consumption of carbohydrate-rich food, this means the amount of sugar going into your bloodstream drops significantly in turn lowering the amount of insulin that your body produces in order to deal with that sugar, which has the benefits of decreasing excessive inflammation, 
And it just so happens that these are all things you want to be quite low if you want your body to be able to more effectively fight viral infections, especially COVID-19. Here's what the paper's authors say in their own words. By implementing refined carbohydrate restriction, three primary risk factors, hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia, and hypertension, that increase inflammation, coagulation, and thrombosis risk are rapidly managed. Dr. C. Malotra is also the author of the 21-Day Immunity Plan, a book that he was inspired to write due to the combination of all the health issues he's been seeing for quite a while now in society at large, brought to a head with the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic. In the book, he talks about the science behind what's going wrong and what you can do to make it right, and, in the book's own words, In just 21 days, we can prevent, improve, and even potentially reverse many of the underlying risk factors that exacerbate how infections, including COVID-19, affect us and our ability to recover from them. I've been reading it and it's quite good. It's straightforward and understandable, and it's a good place to start if you're serious about not keeling over from COVID as soon as someone wearing their face mask as a chin diaper sneezes in your general direction. I'll put links to Dr. Malatra's book and his interview with Sky News in the show notes for this episode, so make sure you check him out. It's almost the end of the show, so let's start wrapping it up by giving you this episode's featured track, straight from 2008, a song called Help, I'm Alive, from Canadian band Metric. They probably meant something different about the song back then, but somehow it just seems kind of appropriate today. In any case, it's a good song. I think you should listen to it. That's it for this episode. Make sure you head on over to 750ml.fm to check out links to stuff we've talked about here, including the key references and stuff you'll want to check out for yourself, along with this episode's secret link. You'll want to get your hands on this one. You can subscribe and listen to the 750ml's podcast on Podomatic.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Just type in 750ml podcast in the search box and tap on the follow or the subscribe button that'll appear there. Also, don't forget to follow 750ml's on Facebook and Twitter. You'll get not just updates, but some extra stuff as well. So make sure you check out the podcast whenever you hang around those places. Links to all of that will be in the show notes for this episode as well, which you already know you can find on 750ml.fm. 750ml.fm. By the way, if you've been enjoying the podcast so far or you think it's been really helpful, please consider leaving a star rating and a quick review. Any feedback you give helps me improve the podcast and it can help other people find it as well, and I'd really appreciate it. Anyway folks, thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll leave you with a few thoughts from someone who many consider to be the father of medicine, Hippocrates, on a pretty good way on how to stay healthy. Here's what he says. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. Hope you have a good day. Take care now.